The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that wants to prove it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by the spin-off with help from Vodafone Zone. Please welcome your host, Simon Pound. I'm very excited to introduce today's guest, someone extra inspiring even by the pretty amazing standards of the people we talk to week in, week out on this show. Someone, I kid you not, that Tony Robbins looks to for motivation and inspiration. He's an author, entrepreneur, doctor, extreme skiing champion, former drunken backflipper, and current dedicated father and inspirational business leader. He even got the modern version of the Hippocratic Oath changed. Let's rewind to the end of uni study when a drunken stunt of a backflip led to Dr. Sam Hazeldean, then in his last year of medical school, with a promising extreme skiing career on the cards, waking up from a coma with a poor outlook for future success at both study and skiing. What could have been the worst day of his life, he made one of his best, resolving to focus on what matters, then going on to outperforming the best hopes for his head injury. Within a year, he was a grad doctor and a skiing national champion. Entrepreneur Dr. Sam Hazeldean is the founder and managing director of three companies that shook up medical orthodoxy by keeping the welfare of young doctors at their heart, MedRecruit, MedWorld and MedCapital. They've been wildly successful. He's been on the Fast 50 list multiple times, been the fastest growing services company in the country, the Ernst & Young Young Entrepreneur of the Year in 2012, and a 2014 recipient of the Sir Peter Blake Leadership Award. He's written best-selling books like Unfair Fight, helping small businesses compete in what he calls an uneven playing field. And recently, he co-founded the holistic talent management company, We Are Tenzing. He wants to help everyone live exceptional lives, from you listening right there, through to scores of orphans his foundation has helped rescue from life as child soldiers in South Sudan. Dr. Sam Hazeldean joins us now. Now, I'm sorry for that, like, over-the-top um, kind of long intro there, but when I was coming to put together this interview, I could have probably had twice as much stuff in there. Um, so it's been a very busy and eventful uh, career so far. Thanks, Simon. I appreciate the kind introduction. Uh, that's great. Can we, let's go right back to um, the beginning of uh, kind of your sense of purpose. Tell me about that um, that moment waking up from the coma that you got from the backflip. Mm. Uh, what, what did you feel then, and how did you how did you change your ways? Well, look, the thing about the head injury for me, you know, I I, I, I truly believe in our lives we're going to have good days and bad days, and we're not going to know which is which at the time. Um, at the time when I went into the coma, I was drunk, and I tried to do a backflip a two meter high wall outside the Captain Cook Tavern. I landed on my head, and I I went into a coma. Now, my parents got a phone call at 2.30 in the morning saying, you better get to the need, and we don't know if your son's going to come out of this coma. 
they definitely said it was a bad day. Um, I did come out of the coma and a, a week later, you know, when I first came out of the coma, I couldn't remember what, what it was like waking up because I was head injured. But you know, I remember a week later on ward rounds and the doctor said to me, look, Sam, you've had a significant brain injury. You probably aren't going to regain full brain function. Therefore, you're unlikely to return to medical school and you'll never ski again. You know, I definitely said it was a bad day. Um, but life gives us lessons. And, and I truly believe that life gives us lessons in three ways. The first lesson I call the feather. It's that little voice on your shoulder, that little niggle, that little something's not quite right. You know, you know something's not quite right, but if you ignore the feathers, you, life's going to keep giving you the lesson. And the next lesson is what I call the brick. I had the brick in a lot of forms, you know, um, family, friends, medical school, police. You know, I was given a lot of reasons to change. But if you're a particularly slow learner and you ignore enough bricks, you get the lesson I call the Big Mac truck. And the Big Mac truck is the lesson that comes through, bowls you over, says, time to change. It's the lesson you can't ignore. Now, I mean, it's the lesson that could also kill you. It's the lesson that could you know, end your relationship, that could put you out of business, whatever. But for me, the head injury was that Big Mac truck. It was the lesson that I couldn't ignore. And it taught me that for my life to change, I needed to change. And, and the key thing it taught me was that for my life to change, I had to raise my standards. And I had to raise the standards of, of, of who I was as a person. I had to raise the standards of how I was behaving. And I had to raise the standards of the results I was getting because we're judged on our results. Rightly so, we should be. And I, I wasn't getting results in my life that you know, I could be proud of. So for me, the head injury, it was a turning point. And, and you know, since making that decision, after that to actually you know, sort my shit out and, and raise my standards, um, everything good in my life has happened. You know, from graduating medical school to making, um, you know, becoming the national free ski champ to setting up the company, um, fastest growing service business, um, you know, my two little girls, you know, the awards, all that sort of stuff. But, you know, that's come from just making that simple decision to hold myself to a higher standard. And, and, and that essentially drives my life in, in all forms now. What was it like uh, trying to rebuild things and get back into gear and then do the skiing? I mean, how important is that kind of side of the competitiveness to uh, be told that you're not going to be able to do it, but then compete at that highest level? Oh, that's, that's a great question. And, and I think uh, it's something to keep in mind. You know, I'm the type of person who responds to challenge. Um, now, I also get that I think in our profession in medicine, we've got to be really careful about the words we use because not, you know, 95% of people will believe what the doctor says. It's a small percentage of people who might go, you know what, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to write my own story here. So, you know, what was it? I mean, it was hard. It was really hard. The thing about head injuries, like significant head injuries, is they are every moment of every day. And so it wasn't that, like I, I was failing like once or twice and had to get up. It was like multiple times a day. And, and the thing that I guess I had to get really, really clear on is, is not just what I wanted to, where I wanted to get to, but it was why it was important to me and to find that real driver. Because I had changed a lot about who I was. You know, I was, prior to the head injury, I was drinking really heavily. I was abusing alcohol um, and I was living in a way that just wasn't good for me. It wasn't good for anyone. And I had to... I had to make some real changes in my life. And essentially, you know, my, my identity was I was the guy who drank the most and pushed it the hardest and you know, did the stupidest things. And, and that as a, as a formula for recovering from a head injury is just doesn't, doesn't work. So you know, I had to give up the booze. I had to you know, stop being such an idiot. 
and, and I had to change the whole identity of who I was. And, and, and it was difficult. But the thing I think about sacrifice, you know, I think sacrifice is a really important thing that we actually have to get comfortable with. But the thing about sacrifice is it only hurts at the time. You know, we never look back when we sacrifice the unimportant in our lives, um, whether that's, you know, spending too much time on Facebook, whether that's just what you were watching your life away on TV, whether that's drinking too much, whatever it is, you know, we never look back on it and go, oh, I wish I'd done more of that. Mm. Um, and so I, I had to sacrifice that for a, for a period of time and actually, I guess, create new neural pathways. Um, NASA did a really interesting study where they looked at astronauts. And they, they put them in convex glasses to try and see what their minds would do, how they would respond to being in zero gravity. And what was really interesting is between days 25 and day 30, every astronaut who'd kept the glasses on, their minds adapted and it flipped the world the right way up. So they started seeing the world the right way up. Now, what was even more interesting is there was a cohort of astronauts that took the glasses off at day 15. And of those astronauts, they reset the clock. It was another 25 to 30 days before they, their minds adapted. What that tells me is, you know, it takes 30 days to create a habit. And so sacrifice, as long as you can just stick at it, you don't have to stick, sacrifice is not forever. Sacrifice is just for a short period of time until you create that new neural pathway. Um, and if you don't deviate for 30 days, it becomes a whole lot easier. So, yeah. look, it was difficult, but, but, but getting clear about what I wanted and why it was important, that was the driver that, you know, kept me to task. Yeah, that's really interesting. It stops being sacrificed and starts being your normal. Um, Absolutely. And, and tell me about, like, once you were um, practicing as a, uh, a doctor and you yep. were um, out in the world, the company you started, MedRecruit, yep. um, that, that t- tell me a little bit about the guiding insight, because that was your first kind of big successful move as an entrepreneur. Sure. And I imagine actually even taking that first step to be an entrepreneur when you've just studied so long and so hard and got a big loan and done everything to be a doctor, to step sideways seems to be such a brave step. Yeah, look, I mean, that's an interesting one. I mean, I, I truly believe that you've got to spend your life doing what you love. You've got to be passionate about what you're doing. And I wasn't passionate about medicine. I didn't mind it. I didn't, I didn't hate it. Um, and I was okay at it. Um, but but I, didn't, I wasn't like just juiced about it, passionate about it. And what I saw is that after starting work as a doctor... I saw that, you know, 25% of my classmates were leaving the profession within three years of graduation. And I hypothesized that it was because doctors hadn't, that medicine hadn't evolved to cater to a younger generation of doctors and what they wanted. Um, That essentially there was an old guard saying, this is how it is, this is how we did it, this is how it should be, and this is what you're going to do. And there was a group of, you know, the younger doctors who were going, well, screw you, I'll just, I'll do my own thing. And so I set up MedRecruit then just purely at the time to help doctors create a lifestyle in medicine. And my, you know, I guess what drove me about that is, you know, when you're a doctor, you're always a doctor. And so I was, you still keep the patient as the end goal. And I just hypothesized that it was, you know, if you could help a doctor find what they loved in medicine, it's a great profession. If they could, you know, travel a bit, make some money, live at the beach, try some different professions, you know, take them out of that pressure cooker that is the, the rat, you know, the, the ladder in the medical profession, that they'd find what they're passionate about and they'd be better doctors. And, and so that was the premise that we, I started MedRecruit on. And it, it hit the nail on the head because, you know, it, we grew really quickly by the third year and we're the fastest growing service business in the country. And, and, and it was purely because I had a, I guess, 
a purpose for the company that was well beyond me. I have my own ambitions as well. You know, I wanted to create a, you know, a global um, group of companies and, you know, financial success and, and that side of things as well. Absolutely. But my main driver was like, we need to change our profession. Now, the thing is that, that being clear on that purpose, that driver, that is what has led me to evolve. And, and so, you know, a few years ago, that's when we, I looked at it and said, look, I can't have the impact I want in medicine just through MedRecruit. We're having an impact with the people we work with, but it's not changing things at, at, on a wide enough scale. You know, every morning I write out my goals. So what I call my standards. You know, I think goals are nice to achieve. Standards are a must. One of them is evolve the status quo. Every morning I'm writing that. And I thought, how can I evolve the status quo of medicine? How can I evolve the status quo of our profession? And so I was sitting there and I, and I was looking at that and I started doing research into stress and burnout in doctors. Now, the, the results are terrifying. Over 50% of doctors are in burnout at any point in time. Not at some point in their career, like right now. So one in two doctors. The problem with that burnout is it leads to um, depersonalization and emotional disconnection from our patients. And that causes increases in major medical errors. So the way doctors are living and behaving, treating themselves and looking after themselves is actually causing us to harm our patients. Now, you know, we operate from the principle first do no harm. And we're violating that principle because of, because of how we're being as doctors. So I, so I was doing research into not just what caused the stress and burnout, but also what made doctors thrive. You know, um, if, if, if over 50% are, if 50 are in burnout, that means 50% aren't. Now, 87% are overstressed. That means 30% aren't stressed. They're thriving. So I wanted to talk to those ones. And I, and I, found, I was looking for core patterns of behavior and what, what helped doctors to thrive. And um, so, so I identify these things. And I just coming back to this point of being clear on your purpose, clearing why it matters. You know, I was, I was then speaking to a group of graduating medical students about, um, about thriving in the profession. Uh, it, was, it, it was at the same conference, a, um, um, Stephen Child, who was then president of the New Zealand Medical Association, was speaking about what it means to be a doctor, the profession, who we are. And he held up this declaration in Geneva, the modern day Hippocratic Oath. And he said, this is who we are. These are the values we have as doctors. And I was looking at that. I'd just been speaking about health and well-being. And I'm looking at that going, you know, it's all about the patient. You know, the, there's nothing in there about the actual doctor. You know, coming back to if you focus, what you focus on, you get more of. You know, I'm writing out my standards every morning. One of those things is evolve the status quo. And I look at this and I suddenly just occurred to me, if we can change the declaration and even the modern day Hippocratic Oath, that doesn't just impact the people I impact through my companies, it impacts every doctor on earth and therefore every patient on earth, which is every single person. So I was like, this is my opportunity. And so I started a petition, um, started lobbying the World Medical Association. Um, Stephen Child, you know, New Zealand Medical Association, super helpful, you know, helped me to, um, to spoke, spoke with, the, with them and they invited me to go and present at their annual general assembly one year. And then this year, you know, last year, I should say in October, they voted on it and they uh, approved the change to the Declaration of Geneva to include health and well-being of doctors. And, and that's no small thing, is it? I mean, it's only been changed a couple of times yeah. ever, you know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was, it was amazing. And, 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 and the thing about it is, you know, it's time had come. You know, you, present, you presented my research, presented, you know, it's irrefutable uh, that it's important that doctors look after themselves. And so, you know, in all honesty, I was the right guy in the right place at the right time saying the right things. Um, so, so, but, but, but it felt really good to go, you know, this is potential, this is a contribution I make to my colleagues, my profession, um, beyond just my businesses and what we can do. 
with that thing about evolving the status quo, when I think in my head about the life of a young doctor or a um, starting out doctor, not just to you know put it in an age black, uh, category, I think about the ridiculous hours yep. we all hear about and the you know eighteen hour shifts that are backed up seven days in a row and the like, and coming in and having that offer of med recruit that, as you just phrased it then, like travel, lifestyle, money, that seems to be so poles apart. And then also you at that stage would have been a very young person. Like um, what, what what was it like coming up against the um, institutions and against the status quo with something that was so at the other end? Was that easy? Were you, did, Look, did you have a big hill to climb? No, well, yes. I mean, yes. But, but and I, I'm sort of smiling about this because um, I got in a bit of trouble at the start, you know, I started, you know, I think we've got to acknowledge luck in terms of our success. And I was fortunate that I started the business when I started it because there was such a shortage of doctors. And my strategy was if I tie up the supply chain of doctors, the hospitals need me. I kind of forgot that the hospitals were my customer. Like doctors don't pay us anything. It's the hospitals who pay us for the doctors. But all my marketing, all my approach was essentially flipping the bird at the establishment <laughs> saying, you know, come work with us. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll you know, send you to the beach. You can make a bunch of money. You can do all this sort of stuff. And, do- and junior doctors loved it, but the hospitals hated it. And I got, I got, I mean, I got hate mail um, and, and I got a lot of criticism, but at the same time they needed what I had, which was the doctors. Now, um, it, you, know, it was, you know, when you're young, you sort of think you're bulletproof. But, but you know, I, I guess over time, and, and this is, you know, I've evolved. And, and I've evolved to see that, you know, there's a challenge for doctors, but there's a challenge for the, uh, for the hospitals too. You know, they're, they're in a situation. It was really interesting, actually. You know, Stephen Child, this guy I referenced earlier, just after this talk, he came, actually, no, sorry, during the talk, um, I just spoke and he got up and he's like, you know what? I used to really hate Sam Hazeline. Um, I used to see him as the enemy. And I was like, whoa, nice work. Um, good start. And he's like, but you know what? What I see now is that what he's about is exactly the same thing as I'm about. We've just come at it from different angles. And I think, you know, what I've done is mature enough to see that we're all coming at it from the same place. We all want what's best for our profession. Um, you know, when I was young, a bit of mature, I, I, I guess, you know, the way I went about it was, was you know, somewhat non-establishment but that got us noticed that put us on the map we had a thing called dare dr sam doctors would um vote you know would, would nominate things for me to do and then they'd vote on it you know so i'm going to like a supermarket in a borat outfit i water skied across lake Waktipu in a leopard print g screen i got colonic irrigation um well, there's, there's quite a fascination with getting you into uh g-string yeah I, generally yeah, there yeah, was yeah, there yeah, was yeah. nothing that was like no actually there was one which was wear a chicken suit and do some yeah. stuff but um so generally it was it involved semi-nudity but you know that that was i guess the approach that got us noticed mm. and it appealed to a younger generation of doctors now look as i matured um you know I, what's interesting is i think a business is the reflection of the owner of the leader and so you know if i'd stayed in that place we wouldn't be what we are now. You know, I matured enough to see that we're all fighting the same fight, um, that we, you know, the hospitals want the same thing as I want, as the doctors want, and ultimately it's about good patient care. Like, we can never forget that. And so, you know, and, and as our junior doctors became senior doctors, as we focused on different groups of doctors, 
um, you know, we had to evolve, we had to mature as well. And you, and you just naturally do. And, and, and I think it's through that evolution, you know, the company has become a whole lot more of a positive influence than just the sort of the young upstart. But, but the young upstart approach is what got me on the map. Yeah, and one of the fastest growing companies in the country, like an enormous growth curve. Absolutely. And then out the top of that, you, yeah. you decided to launch into something that was much more broad based for all medical kind of um, uh, doctors, not just the juniors, which was like med capital, which yep. uh, t- tell me about like starting a, a way to help. Like, you know, I, I, it's very obvious to a bystander that, you know, young doctors might not want to work 18 hour days, seven days a week, but it's not so obvious that doctors need help with their finances. Look, here's a, it's a really interesting one. I mean, and it comes back to that purpose as well. You know, the purpose is to help doctors live exceptional lives because it means they can practice better medicine. It's real simple. And so the number one stress of doctors is their career. It's their work. Have a guess what the number two stress is. Cash. <laughs> it's money. Yeah. 48% of doctors are stressed about money. But if you look at stats in Australia, doctors are 18 of the top 20 money-earning professions. They, they spit out specialties as a different profession. Right. So doctors are 18 of the top 20. But everyone has to keep up with the Joneses. But four out of five are delaying retirement for financial reasons. Is that right? So how many houses in Omaha do you need? <laughs> exactly. Well, look, I mean, that's, that, I mean, that's part of it. But they just the thing about doctors is not many of them get into it for money. So it's just not a priority. And as a doctor... You, you, the, the mindset we see is I make heaps of money, I'm fine, I'll be fine for life. But we don't, you know, you don't have a business to sell. You don't necessarily have it. You may not, if you're not building assets, then you've got nothing, you know. So this is why doctors are delaying retirement because yeah, they're, if, they're if, not financially. If you're um, a surgeon and you get arthritis, that's it. That's ex- exactly yeah. right. Like their, their number one asset is themselves and their ability to earn income. So we look at that and then you combine that with they're very time poor. So, they, you know, they're not that interested in money and they're not, um, they don't have a lot of time to manage it. Um, that's not a good combination for, for, for good financial management. So what we do with Med Capital is you know, the, the, the goal of the company is take make money worries a thing of the past for doctors. And, and, you know, I look at things and you go, how do you, if you want to manage an area of your life, how do you reduce the activation energy? Now, the activation energy is the energy it takes to actually sort it out. Now, generally speaking, when it comes to finances, you, you know, you might New Year's and you go, right, time to, time to sort my finances out. What do I need to do? Well, I got to write a financial plan. I got to get an accountant. I got to get a tax plan. I got to get a financial plan. I got a mortgage broker. I got to get an um, insurance broker. I got to get a law. I mean, I got to get like these eight people and I got to write a plan and I got to coordinate them and they've all got self-interests and I got to coordinate them in the same direction. It's, a, it's almost impossible, I think, to actually manage your money well. And so what we do is we base it like on a family office, which is what the ultra wealthy have. So we have what's called a private wealth manager. One person, you come in as a doctor, we'll sit down with you, we'll write you the whole plan, um, we'll present the plan to you, you'll get agreement on the plan, and then we'll execute the plan for you. Mm. So we then have all those other people um, and we execute the plan. So essentially what you do is, you know, you've got one point of contact now rather than trying to coordinate, you know, cats with ADHD. And, and, and it just take, makes things work. And look, it's been, a, it's been a challenging model actually to build because um, it, it just, it's, just, it's actually just so much um, complexity to it. There's complexity to, to make it simple. Uh, but we've got there now and, you know, essentially, I mean, it's incredible. You know, every single doctor who I meet could do with the service. 
like I've never been involved in a business where pretty much your entire target market needs what you've got. Um, and, and once we get a doctor to the point where we present a plan to them, so far, 100% of doctors have done 100% of what we recommend. Like they really appreciate the service. And so it's been really, really exciting. It's been an exciting business to be involved with. It's quite exciting just to jump forward a bit in the timeline as well. The way that you've taken something that you've proved with doctors who mm. are basically a byword for being bright and yep. onto it. Sure. Uh, and now um, with We Are Tenzing, where you've managed to add this service for sports people or high profile people who may have shorter money-making careers, uh, more concentrated high points anyway, and then helping them with their long-term financial strategy. Yeah, look, look, I mean, we are Tenzing focused on influencers and a lot of those people are sports people. And and the reason we started that, Brooke and I, I remember, I remember the conversation because I was um, I was a driver at a wedding and, and you know, someone, so, so just backstory, the photographer had left the car keys, I think, in the helicopter and... His wife was stranded like half an hour away, and so she was pissed at him. And anyway, I had to go and deliver the car keys because I was the driver for the wedding. Um, I love driving weddings. I think it's just it's just such a great um, opportunity. You know, it's such a privilege. But anyway, so I was driving, and so I had all this time in the car. And and Brooke, um, a friend of Brooke's, had recently who was a um, um, absolute top BMX rider, second most medaled X Games medal of all time, had recently committed suicide. And I just gave Brooke a call to say, look, I'm really sorry to hear about your mate. And we started talking about athletes. And he was talking about how him and Derek Handley had, had been saying to look at, well, what can we do in this space to actually make a difference? You know, you've got this thing as an athlete where um, it's all about achievement, you know. And, and, and the thing about achievement is achievement's never – is never as fulfilling as you think it's going to be. Whether it's money, awards, you know, whatever it is, you get there and you're like, uh, you know, what's actually relevant is the is the is the journey to get there. You know, one of the things I was I was, I was New Year's Eve actually, I was kind of writing out my own life manifesto recently, and, and and I wrote down this thing and I was like, this makes so much sense that you know that the the goal the 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 destination is is an illusion. It's, it's all, the whole thing is a journey. Like the destination is only one step on your journey. And, and so this focus on the destination piece, which is what athletes have, is you get to this point and then it's like, wow, what's next? Yeah, yeah, got gold medal and then you've fallen off a cliff. And you're then, like, yeah, there's nothing And then you got the gold anymore. medal and, yeah. and you're like, well, who really cares? You know, like it's great, no question. And, but, but it's like, well, what's next? You know, like I believe that the purpose of setting goals is not just to achieve them, it's to become the people we need to be to achieve those goals. And, and so it's like, okay, you've got these people who are incredibly successful. Um, you know, they've, they've got self-discipline. They've, you know, they've focused their mindsets. They've done all these different things. And then it's all gone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, depression is so common amongst pro sports people once, you know, once it, it's over. And so, we, you know, and, Der- and, and Brooke had been talking to Derek about, you know, how do we, A, you know, help these people create um, sustainable lives and B, how do you leverage who they are for positive change? Mm. And, and, you know, we, we co-founded We Are Tenzing with those, those goals in mind because you've got these incredible people um, who have value well beyond their sporting careers. And the reason, we, you know, we're called We Are Tenzing, which is named after Tenzing Norgay, is, you know, if you look at um, Tenzing Norgay and Sreben Hillary, what they would be most proud about is not getting to the top of a mountain, it was what they did beyond that. It yeah. was the 200 schools they built in Nepal. It was, you know, that was the impact. And so the metaphor is, is that, you know, you're sporting a success or you're whatever success you create, 
that just gives you your platform to then go and do what you really want to do or what you're really meant to do or what, you know, what's truly going to be meaningful. Um, and, and I guess, you know, it's, it's a very much a purpose-driven organisation um, that, you know, we, we're really, really passionate about. Yeah, and that's cool to be able to help uh, fix the financial thing because sure. you've got space in your life to be uh, altruistic and to do cool things in the community and to use your platform for good if you're not um, pawning your trophies for cash, you know. that, that, yeah, that. Absolutely. I mean, you, you've heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, at the very base of those needs is, is survival. Mm. And, and survival in a modern day is financial. You know, we have, you know, if we're worried about money, we're not worried about anything else. You know, beyond that, above that, you're talking relationships and, um, and meaningful work and ultimately it's about self-actualization. But you're not going to focus on self-actualization if you're worried about how you're going to pay the next bill. Like, we've all been in that situation. Um, you know, I've been when Medicruit at a period where, you know, we're losing six figures a month. We fell off a cliff. I wasn't thinking about anything else. You know, that was my entire world. And, and, but, you know, anyone who's been in that situation where how am I going to pay my next bill? How am I going to feed myself? How am I going to pay the mortgage? Whatever it is, you, you just, there's no space for anything else. So you've got to take that stuff out. And I think the thing about money, good money management, is, it's not just about being wealthy and having money to do all the cool stuff. It's about just not worrying about it. Yeah. Because if you take that worry away, you give yourself almost the, the mental freedom to really focus on what's, what truly matters and, and I think one of the reasons we, one of the only reasons we focus on money as a goal, is because we just don't want to be worrying about it anymore. Mm. And and once once you have enough, you go as long as you allow yourself to go. What's enough? You're like you know, and, and I've been guilty of enough means more. Um, but you, if you if you learn to go beyond enough is more because there's never enough, then um, then you can you can stop worrying about money and just truly do what you're really meant to do. I'd really like to jump in a minute to the books and the videos and the things you do to um, take some of these things that have helped you and you know the people around you be successful. But like something in the course of researching this that really hit home for me was uh, was where you where, where you talked about um, how if if all of your success is about getting to a point, there's no fulfilment. And yep. like success or achievement is not fulfillment. And that was really interesting to me and in how you've been trying to, um, you know, people would look at look at your success and go, well, what else does he want? And then something that you were saying was that you wanted to be able to be more in the moment and appreciate where sure. you are more. T- tell me about that. Yeah, yeah look, I, I, and I can actually remember a moment when I was standing in my driveway and, you know, we've got a you know, big, beautiful house in the country in Queenstown, um, I've got a bunch of cars, all that sort of stuff. And I was standing in the driveway thinking, well, I wish I had my, a Lamborghini. And, and it suddenly occurred to me, I was like, fuck, Sam. Like, seriously, like, how, how much can you more? Can you, you've got two healthy little daughters. Um, you've got everything material that you really need, but you're worrying, you're thinking, oh, well, I wish I had this Lamborghini. And I was like, you know, when are you just going to allow yourself to appreciate what, what is and what you've got? And I remember that moment, and and that for me started a, a different journey, which is about um, not being constantly dissatisfied with what is, but actually learning to balance, I guess, being present, being in the moment, being grateful for what is, while at the same time 
having ambition, striving and wanting more. Yeah, is, is that hard? Because so much of yes. what like makes an entrepreneur be an entrepreneur is you look at something and go, let's change that. Let's not be happy with how it is. Let's not settle for the status quo. And how do you balance evolving the status quo with being happy in the moment? That's my biggest challenge. Uh, you know, it, it, it's that is the biggest challenge I have, which is, you know, because because I truly believe that constant dissatisfaction is the hallmark of a good entrepreneur. Because, you know, if you, if you become satisfied, you know, there's, an, there's a danger of becoming complacent. So, look, it's, it's a constant thing. And, and I think that, you know, what I'm learning to do, and this is a process, um, is, you know, live with the satisfaction while at the same time being grateful for what is. And, and you know, that sounds quite, quite yogi, but it's, it, you know, as I say, it's, it's a kind of a process and, and it's something I'm, I'm comfortable with as well because, you know, I think, you know, as an entrepreneur, you've got to get, you've got to get almost comfortable with being uncomfortable. And, and, and that almost sounds like a, you know, contradiction. But I think that if you, if you can be, if, it's almost like if you can be the eye of the storm, mm. you can be centered, you can be grateful in the eye of the storm. It doesn't mean that you're not engaged with the storm. It just means that you're keeping your head. Tell me about some of the stuff that you've been doing, like um, the the idea of the, the unfair advantage and the um, the book that you wrote to try and help small business because you'd written one for doctors and yep. you'd been kind of in that doctor expert zone. Tell me about taking these ideas and, and what that journey's been like, um, trying to get that down to the small business person and more accessible. Yeah, I mean, the reason I wrote the book was because I, I, I truly, you know, most business re- resources are you know and they love quoting you know fortune 500 companies blah 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 now the problem with that is you know if you're a an sme if you're a five person business 10 person 20 person business what a fortune 500 company does it's not irrelevant but it's also pretty far removed from what you're going to do you know you've got less resources less experience you haven't got the same depth of management team you haven't got the same amount of capital all those things like it's not an even playing field. So if you try and go head to head with big companies as if it is an even playing field, you're going to get destroyed. Um, there was a guy, Ivan Aragon Toft, who is a political scientist, did some research into um, battles waged between two sides where one side was at least 10 times the size and might of the other. So total mismatch. And what he found was really interesting. He found that about two thirds of the time, um, no, sorry, three quarters of the time, the larger side won. All right. No shit. I mean, it's not that surprising. But what's surprising is that 25% of the time, the small guy won. So he looked into that and he found that if the, if the smaller side um, used essentially unconventional guerrilla tactics, they, were two-thirds, they had a two-thirds chance of winning. So we're talking at least 10 times smaller, often, often more than that, but they could give themselves an advantage by applying an unconventional approach. And I think that's the same with business. I think you've got an opportunity in business not to compete head to head. I think you've got an opportunity in business to think differently from the big guy. You know, you're more nimble. Um, you can use personality. Um, you've, got, you've got assets that they don't have. Um, and, and like David and Goliath, you know, if David had gone up against Goliath and tried to beat him in, a, in, in brute force, he'd have been crushed. You know, people remember David and Goliath as David was the underdog and the underdog won. He was never the underdog. He was using artillery and Goliath was this big lumbering giant. David would definitely going to lose. And, and I think, you know, small businesses can apply that same approach 
And, you know, don't go head to head with, you know, with brute force. Use your, your artillery when they've got muscles and you can give yourself that advantage. Let's jump quickly into, yeah, I, I, I love that idea and I would very much recommend people kind of jump in. And on your website, it's interesting that you you offer up a lot of this advice as in, as uh, video content and you've, you've got the book and the like. It's obviously a real passion of yours to share, um, yep. to, to, to share things that have worked for you and, sure. and that you've helped people um, succeed with. Uh, I want to talk quickly about like someone who had a big effect on you, which uh, led you to set up the foundation and get into, because you know, we've been talking about New Zealand, we're talking about sports people, talking about you know stuff that happens here. Yeah. How did you end up uh, being involved in trying to help orphans not become child soldiers in, Look, in South Sudan? It was that was amazing. You know, um, I'm, I'm separated from my wife now, but you know, when we were married, we were watching. We we, we got this. Um, we we had this movie. And this is before Netflix, so this is on My Sky. So we'd recorded um, the Machine Gun Preacher, and I'd, I'd wanted to see it, you know, for a long time. And you know, you know. She was like, well, that doesn't sound that good. And I was like, well, it does sound good. You know, I thought it was going to be a shoot-em-up movie. And then I remember one night she was like, why don't we just watch this movie that you want to watch? I was like, oh, cool. So we watched it. And it was about this guy, Sam Childers, who um, he, he'd had, a, he'd had a, a pretty rough life. Um, he'd sorted himself out. He'd gone on a, um, you know, building, building houses mission in, in Africa. Um, you know, he, he'd been like the shotgun man, so the armed, uh, the armed enforcer for a drug um, dealer. And, you know, he went to Africa and to build this orphanage. And what he saw there was that no one could actually get to the orphanage. The orphans who needed to get there couldn't get to the orphanage because they were being rounded up and made into child soldiers. He's like, well, I've got a skill set. Um, and I could apply the skill set. So he went home, raised money, and then he went out, built an orphanage, and then went out with essentially a militia and by force took these children from the, from the soldiers. Um, you know, pretty controversial. Um, and he was, he was in Queen, and, and so I was like, wow, this is incredible. I was super inspired, and I was like, oh, I want to I build an orphanage. Um, do exactly what he's done. Um, I don't have the same skill set um, of, of, of probably either building or, or, or handling weapons. But anyway, I was like, this is awesome. And then I, was, I remember one day I was getting lunch, and I looked down, and there was this little pile of pamphlets, and it was like Sam Childers, Machine Gun Preachers coming to Queenstown. Like, this is awesome. You know, it was like three, three months away. And, and I remember one night I was um, um, just standing in the kitchen, and Claire had happened to move the pamphlet. And I looked down, I looked at this pamphlet, and I was like, oh, my goodness, it was tonight, and it started like half an hour ago. So I just jumped in the car, raced off, saw, you know, got there just before he came on, and he got on and told a story, and I was I was super inspired. And, and then he he started talking about these um these missions that he used to run, and uh, to to save these child these children from from being child soldiers. And he said, look, you know, we've now got seven orphanages, and it costs us all you know x amount of money, whatever it is, uh, and we don't do these missions anymore because they cost about ten thousand dollars each to put together. And you know, sometimes in those moments of life where you're like, you know, you can't not do something. You know, I, I mean, this was actually at the time where my business had fallen off a cliff and we were losing six figures a month. So I, I didn't have a whole bunch of cash then, but I just had this feeling that I needed to do something. So I went up to him afterwards and I said, look, if someone was to fund one of those rescue missions, um, would you do it? And he goes, we'd go in a heartbeat. And I said, well, I'll, I'll happy to do that. And... And he's like, all right, great. So we sort of, we sort of 
liaised about it and things and, and eventually we ended up we you know funded three missions and and I, I remember you know the first mission I got out one kid and, and he sent me a photo of this one kid and and I was you know I, I you know I was just blown away but you know I, I remember I remember sitting in my office actually crying which sounds crazy but um, I just thought this one kid has got an opportunity at life um, because of something we've done remember this one the next mission he ran and they got out like 19 kids and he took a photo of them and there's this one little boy standing at the front and he's wearing one orange gumboot and one barefoot and he's wearing this one orange gumboot because that's all he had you know and i was just and then this other one and they got like six kids out and i and i just for me it was just you know it's so powerful what he was doing um and, and again you know, he wasn't you know essentially no one else was going to do it like no one you know they have peace talks and blah 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 but he's like look at while all this stuff's happening this kid's getting killed they're getting you know hooked on heroin and turned to child soldiers so i'm going to do something about it and and you know it was just one of those moments in life where it's like i know that it was super hard because i was i was not i was losing money but i just knew i had to do something and it was it was funny it was almost like magic and i'm not saying these two incidents are related but the, um, we, we sorted out the business, we turned it around, and within a couple of months of making that decision, we were back to making really great money. So, you know, I'm not saying they're related, but um, sometimes you just got to do what you got to do and, and just go with that gut feeling. <laughs> that's, that's really cool. Um, it's quite hard to kind of segue out of child um, soldiers in Africa, but I think we'll ask you some of the questions we ask everyone who comes on the show. Sure. Like, um, do you... Do you have kind of words that you go back to uh, when things get tough or words that you live by? Yeah, I mean, w w one, one thing I, I've taught myself to ask myself is where's the grace in this? And, and, you know, for a long time, and I think this just comes back to the hallmark of entrepreneurs, my question, you know, I call it, you know, your driving question is what's wrong with this? And, and what's wrong with this so I can fix it? Um, but the problem with that is you're always finding what's wrong in a situation and people and whatever. And there's not a lot of joy in that. And so I've trained myself to ask the question, what's the, where's the grace in this? Like, what, you know, um, almost like what, what, kind of what's the, what, why is the situation happening for me, not to me? And, and that to me has been transformational for me in terms of going through the really difficult times going, all right, where's the grace in this? Because if you ask a better question, you get a better answer. As opposed to what's wrong with this, you'll find what's wrong with it. Whereas if you ask where's the graceness, you'll find that too. So that's been really useful. And I think one of the things I talk about in the book is that driving question is we, we all have a question that we ask ourselves over and over and over throughout the entire day. That's well, kind of like the filter of our experience. And I think, you know, identifying what that question is and then doing the best you can to change it because it's really hard to change it because, you know, we've got some wiring. I'm not saying it's hard wiring. But, um, but, but, but we do really have to, I guess, put an intention and a focus if we want to change what that question is. And what's the advice you must get asked a lot, you know, as a, uh, a entrepreneur of the year winner, you know, what, what's the advice that you give to young entrepreneurs or new entrepreneurs starting out or people wanting to kind of take the, the jump into their dream? Look, I, you know, anyone who wants to do anything that's exceptional, anything outside the norm and look, you know, starting a business, well, Creating successful businesses outside the norm. Most businesses fail. Um, and, and I'm not saying that you don't get into entrepreneurship because of that. But the, the first thing I always ask people is, uh, how hungry are you? How much do you want it? Because, you know, 
the road to success, whatever, however you define success, whether it's in terms of achievement, money, fulfillment, whatever, it is, it's going to be bloody hard, and there's going to be you're going to fall over a lot. Um, and the key is not whether you never fail; it's whether you stay down when you fail or whether you get back up. You know, I say that while failure is inevitable, defeat is optional. You know, failure you're going to fall over, you're going to skin your knee, you're going to hurt yourself, you're going to lose money, you're going to, relationships are going to break up, blah blah blah. All this stuff's going to happen. But what you do when that happens is the important bit. You choose to get back up. And what's going to get you back up is whether you're hungry or not. And I think how hungry you are is determined by how, obviously how much you want something. You know, most people ask questions in their life by asking the question, what can I achieve safely? Now, the problem with that is it's right inside your comfort zone. It's boring. It's unexciting. It's easily achievable. It's safe. But we're just not excited about it. We're not juiced about it. Have you ever, have you ever broken a shoelace? Yes. Yeah. 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 Three weeks later, were you still fiddling around with that stupid shoelace? Does it keep, you know, they keep, you know, they keep breaking and getting shorter and shorter. Have you, yeah, have yeah, you been yeah, in that situation? Yeah, 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 yeah. But were you capable of getting a new shoelace? Yeah, you just put things off. Yeah, you just put it off because you're not excited. About it. it's, it's a bloody shoelace. Who cares? But that's how people set outcomes to their lives. You know, what can I achieve safely? How can I get a new shoelace? Three weeks go by, you haven't done anything about it. Three months go by, yeah, it just can't be asked. Three years go by, yeah, this goal setting thing doesn't work. Um, so instead of asking that question, what can I achieve safely? I'd encourage people to ask, what would excite me? What would juice me up? What would get me passionate to the point where I, I you know, I'm, I'm up early, I'm going to bed late, I'm thinking about it when I wake up, I'm, I'm almost fanatical about it. Because when, you, when you've got that level of engagement, you know, anything truly becomes possible. Um, you know, the power of the human spirit when it's ignited at that level is, is something I think phenomenal. And I think, you know, that's what, that's what successful entrepreneurs have. It's what um, successful athletes, anyone who's uber successful in any area of their life, they've found that passion, that hunger, that excitement, and because that's the thing that's going to keep them going. Because we're going to fall over, we're going to fail. You know, I've traded through insolvency. All that sort of stuff's going to happen. It's not whether it happens; it's it's how you respond when it does happen. And hunger is the thing that's going to be that driver that pulls you through. That's so magic. Thank you, Dr. Sam Hazeldean, for sharing uh, that with us. I would recommend anyone to jump on to samhazeldean.com to uh, get access to a bit more of um, the, the free content. We're talking access to free stuff. But um, yeah, yeah, jump on and have a look there. Yeah, thank you for coming and sharing with us today. Look, it's a pleasure. It was great to be here and just get an opportunity to connect with you and whoever's listening. Yeah, great. Day. Thank you very much for listening out there. Thank you, Alice Webladell, for producing. And uh, yeah, if you do have any um, feedback or suggestions for the podcast, hit us up on Twitter at Simon underscore Pound. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. All this was brought to your ears by the spin-off and Vodafone Zone. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, Jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.